is from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, to uh, chapter 3, verse 6. And if you don't have a Bible, Christine is coming around with the red ones. Two Corinthians chapter two verse twelve. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you that you speak to us through your word uh, and that you speak powerfully to us through your word. And so I ask that you would enable me not to be a distraction uh, and that we would hear what it is that you have to say. Um, Enable me to speak clearly and truthfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's been a lot of interruption to uh, life over the last couple of years. Uh, interruptions to work, interruptions to family holidays, uh, interruptions to just life in general, and lots of interruptions to church life as well, and uh, ministry and mission. I don't know, did you have to go into, um, I think every church did in some form, had to go into sort of online church in some way. It's not really how you sort of it's not plan A for, for church and ministry in general. Interruptions all over the place. But fortunately, we are in good company. In the passage that we read this morning from 2 Corinthians, uh, at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 2 there, uh, we find the Apostle Paul himself having his plans for mission, his plans for ministry interrupted. 
Uh, the context is from the first couple of uh, chapters of, of Corinthians that uh, Paul had already been to Corinth uh, some years before. He'd established the church there and now he's writing to them. And he's told them in chapter 1 that uh, he had planned to visit them on his way to Macedonia, but in the end, uh, because he was worried about his mission partner, Titus, uh, he went straight on to Macedonia uh, to find out how Titus was and, and couldn't go to Corinth. Now, it seems that Paul was c- copping some flack uh, for this change of plans. and Paul, uh, But Paul was making it clear, has made it clear in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that uh, he hadn't made these plans lightly and he hadn't cancelled them lightly either. Now, even though these were Paul's decisions to change his plans here, he was at the mercy of circumstance, really. We read in chapter 1, verse 13, that uh, Paul says he had no peace of mind because he was worried about Titus, what was happening for him. And so he simply had to go and ensure that he was okay. Unfortunately, though, this change of plans was feeding into a broader narrative in Corinth, a broader narrative from Paul's opponents, from Paul's naysayers. They were saying that his gospel, Paul's gospel, Paul's message, was just a load of unreliable, untrustworthy, illogical nonsense. Paul's credibility was being questioned. For a start, his opponents in Corinth thought the message of a saviour who had been killed on a cross, well, that was just ridiculous. And then they heard about Paul's suffering and the, the chaos of his ministry in Asia and his imprisonment or his near imprisonment and that he and his team had, been, uh, had close shaves with death and that they'd even despaired of life itself, as Paul says in chapter 1, verse 8. Paul's opponents were saying, well, what kind of gospel is this of Paul's if it results in this kind of mess? What kind of God would let this happen to his greatest advocate? Really? Paul can't even keep his commitments for goodness sake. He can't, pl- uh, he can't plan past morning tea. And he wants us to follow him and his gospel and his Lord. I mean, come on. If all this is going on, is Paul's message actually credible? And I can relate to some of those questions. As I said, church um, mission work in China for 10 years, came back to look after my father, ready to go back to China. Pandemic, can't go here now for a while. This is not our plan A for mission. This is not our choice. It was our choice to come back to look after my father, but even that wasn't really our plan A for what we wanted to be doing. And then, of course, the pandemic. Not our plan A for mission. Stuck here. What's going on? And our non-Christian family, my non-Christian family, they've never said this to us because they're lovely and they're from Adelaide, so they're very polite but I know that they think quietly sometimes if David and Tab's God is really all-powerful, 
and they've got such a great message of salvation from that God. What's going on here with all of these interruptions, this angst that they go through? What's going on? Is it really credible if all of this stuff is getting in the way? And if I'm honest, those thoughts flash past my mind sometimes as well. And what about Christy? Most of you know her story pretty well. All set to go on mission to Southeast Asia and then her father's health and him passing away. And so her plans are delayed. She looks after her father and then she's all set to go. And then the pandemic and she's here. What's going on? Now, how many of us might have been wondering if this was all really worth Christy putting her life on pause for? How many of us wondered if this was all happening, was this really God's plan? What are we to do with these interruptions, these emotional roller coasters? What does it mean for the credibility of the gospel of Jesus? We know God's mission from creation was to create a people for himself. We know from God's promise to Abraham that God's people would be blessed and be a blessing to all nations. We know from the Gospels that after Jesus' resurrection, he sent his people out to all nations to make the Gospel of Jesus known. This is God's mission from the beginning. And it's a mission that centers around the message that God gave Paul and the other apostles. A mission that God calls all of us as Christians today to continue on taking that same message to all nations. And yet, there is so much stuff that gets in the way. In our own lives, in our own plans for ministry, they get hijacked. Yes, sometimes they get hijacked because of our own silliness, our own sinfulness, our own warped priorities. But oftentimes, it's just because of the circumstance we find ourselves in. Health, mental health, family problems, financial limitations, opposition from others who just think Christianity is a relic from a bygone era, government legislation that means you can't talk about Jesus in schools maybe, employer expectations that say you can't talk about Jesus with your clients, even sometimes leaders in church structures who seem opposed to proclaiming Jesus as the only means of salvation. And then there are Christians in other parts of the world who genuinely have their lives and their livelihoods threatened because of their desire to let people know about Jesus. So if the message of the gospel is so powerful, so great, what is going on with all of this stuff that gets in the way? Why all the interruptions? Why all the suffering for those who are just trying to get on with it? That's the question that Paul is addressing throughout this letter. And what he's doing here at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 is he wants his readers to start to think differently about the role of obstacles to plans for mission and ministry. He wants us to think differently about interruptions to our mission and to our ministry. 
to those who would question the validity, the validity of the gospel when things go wrong for those who are just trying to spread it, to those who think the suffering of God's messengers means that the message must be invalid, Paul says, ha! This suffering is how the message spreads. This suffering is how you know the message of Jesus is valid. This is, in fact, God's plan. God is leading us in it. Chapter 2, verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. I remember in, it was 1997 or 1998, I'm not sure which, I was working in the city and the Adelaide Crows had won the grand final and they came back to Adelaide and there was this huge procession uh, through the city down King William Street towards the town hall uh, and, uh, and there they were, all of the Crows players who'd won the grand final on the back of these little sports cars processing through the city. They were holding up the AFL Cup and there were streamers literally and confetti coming down from the tops of buildings and there was cheers all throughout the city and loud music. It was just a celebration for the victors of the AFL. Now it's true that it's been a long time since any such celebration here in Adelaide for an AFL grand final victory. But that's how we in Adelaide, we in Western culture, picture a triumphal procession, something like that. But that's not the complete picture that Paul intends to bring to his readers' minds with his reference to this triumphal procession. What Paul is referring to here was a standard Roman triumphal procession that would have been well known in Corinth 2,000 years ago. These were lavish occasions. They were held in Rome to celebrate great victories over their enemies. The valiant soldiers would process through the city before crowds. They would be carrying with them the spoils of war, the things they'd stolen from their enemy. There'd be pomp and there'd be ceremony. And at the head of the parade would be their supreme commander, Caesar. It was any Caesar's greatest honour to lead one of these triumphal processions through Rome. But behind the Caesar wasn't just the victorious soldiers. Most importantly, there was also the leaders of the conquered nation. Now, can you imagine uh, at the Crows uh, grand final ceremony in the city, Crows processing through, and then behind them you had the captain and the coach and the president of the St Kilda Football Club moping through with their, with their heads held down, being jeered at by the crowd drunk on their victory. So the commanders and the political leaders of the enemy who had been defeated by Rome, they would be there in this triumphal procession. In chains, probably. And they were being humiliated as they were led by the conquering Caesar. They were being led not just to their captivity, but usually to their death. 
So these captives in this triumphal procession were there to show the power, the might, the glory of the conquering Caesar. That's why the captives were there. That's the triumphal procession that Paul wants us to have in mind in verse 14. Now, Paul is not using this triumphal procession. He's not using it to say, well, we might be going through tough times now, but we're going to have a great victory in the future. That's not his point. That might be true, but that's not his point. Paul isn't saying that he himself is one of the victors in the parade. Paul is saying he's actually being led as a captive by God in this parade. God the supreme victor. God is the one who has conquered all. Paul is saying he's been led by God as a defeated prisoner of war. Paul is using his own life and his own setbacks and his own interruptions in mission, his own sufferings as an example. You see, Paul was conquered by the Lord in his conversion on the road to Damascus, and God is now leading him as a slave of Christ, which is a phrase that Paul uses elsewhere in his other letters. So through all the struggles and setbacks and sufferings, Paul is being led to death in order to reveal the majesty, the power, the glory of God in God's conquest. Paul's suffering, his weakness, his setbacks, don't call his apostleship into question. Rather, they confirm his apostleship even more. And they glorify and make known the glory and the power of God the Father. This is how we are to think about suffering and setbacks in mission and ministry. Think about Christy right now. She's gone into lockdown. Sounds like it's um, loosening off a bit. But she's been in lockdown for a while. And I, I don't profess to know detail about how she's feeling, so I'm not going to speak to that. But how are we to think about her situation right now? See, Christy could have been right here in Adelaide, meeting up with whoever she wanted, whichever non-Christian she wanted, whenever she wanted, to talk to them about Jesus however she wanted. So I'm sure that Christy's plan A for mission was not to be locked up in her apartment in Southeast Asia, away from her teachers, away from the students, away from the people at the language centre. Now, our perspective on these kind of setbacks in mission shouldn't be as failures or a stain on Christie's credibility or, or our credibility or the credibility of the gospel. Or, they shouldn't be as things which prevent God from being made known. Rather, we're to think about them the way that God does because they reveal to us, they reveal us, I should say, to be truly being led by God. These setbacks are the things that reveal God's great glory. Because we're being led as captives in the great procession. 
Now you say, Dave, yes, that's good. I can kind of follow that. And this is all seems like some wonderful uh, calisthenics, uh, logical calisthenics that Paul is doing here with his logic. But I don't think that everyone out there is going to be convinced by this reasoning. And that's right. And Paul knows it too. But Paul says this too is part of the plan. Paul says there will be different kind of responses to sufferings and setbacks faced by uh, people on God's mission. He refers to the message uh, and the suffering and the setbacks of God's people on mission as verse uh, chapter 2, verse 14, being a fragrance of the knowledge of God. Our suffering is a fragrance and it wafts in a few different directions. Chapter 2, verse 15. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. So it's a what? It's an, an, a fragrance, an aroma that goes in three different directions. To God and then among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. First and foremost, it's an aroma that goes to God. Now this is an image from the Old Testament about the aroma of burnt sacrifices. It's a a phrase that's used, a, a word that's used to refer to the sacrifices that God's people made. For example, in Leviticus chapter 1 verse 9, um, it's, it's talking there about the sacrifices, the offerings that priests uh, were to make. Uh, and the priest is to take an animal as an offering, and it says in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9, the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So when Israel slaughtered and burnt the appropriate animal in the appropriate way as an appropriate sacrifice to God, we are told this was an aroma pleasing to God. And Paul is using that history, that image here, because Christ himself was the ultimate offering to God. Christ's sacrifice His suffering in obedience on the cross was the truly pleasing aroma of a sacrifice to God. And those of of us who are in Christ, those of us who follow Christ, when God smells us, if you like, he doesn't actually smell us and our sacrifices. He smells the pleasing aroma of Christ and his sacrifice. So, it's the same for those people who are watching on to the suffering of Christians in ministry and mission. When we suffer, when we face setbacks in mission, what people around us are seeing, what they're sensing, or what people are smelling, is not actually our setbacks and suffering, they're sensing something of the suffering and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And different people, when they get a whiff of that, are going to respond to that aroma 
in different ways. When we as Christians look at the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus, we think, man, God is good. He is awesome. He's gracious. He loves us. He went to that extent for us. He loves us and he has the power to save us and he did it like that. For us, it's like it's an aroma that's like me when I go to a barbecue after a long day of work and I arrive at the barbecue and there's a good steak on the grill. It's that kind of aroma. But not everyone responds to that aroma the same way. I've seen vegetarians literally almost uh, recoil in disgust at the smell of burning flesh and blood. Same aroma, two different responses. So too others when they read the same story of Christ's suffering and sacrifice. They can think it's some combination of ghastly and ridiculous And when some hear of the suffering and setbacks of gospel ministry and mission, they can assume, like Paul's critics, that if they're going through these kind of struggles, then their God and their message is at best a joke. and Probably it's actually just quite dangerous. But when we see Christians on God's mission suffering because they are on that mission, Paul is urging his readers to realise that in these kinds of sufferings we are to see a glimpse of Christ. It reminds us that we're actually smelling a little waft of the pleasing aroma of Christ's suffering and sacrifice. And so Paul is urging us to rejoice and to thank God because he is being made and gl- uh, made made known and glorified through it. Now we won't always quite understand how that's happening. But every now and then God is kind enough to show us how he glorifies himself and makes himself known through setbacks and sufferings of people in mission and ministry. The history of my organisation in China goes back to the 1930s. There was a man in Norway, uh, a visitor came to his church uh, and told the church about the great needs for the gospel in China. Afterwards, the offering plate came by, an offering to mission in China. He put all of the money he had into that offering plate. And then he thought, no, that's not enough. And so he scribbled on a bit of paper and my life and put that in the offering plate. What he was saying was he was committing his life to the service of the gospel in China. Eventually, he made his way to China. His name was Peter Torgerson. Uh, he started a, a small church in the province that we now serve in. Uh, the church grew a little bit. And then in the 1930s, the Sino-Japanese War started and Japanese bombers started flying overhead. He, could, he had the choice then to leave, but he chose not to. Norway was neutral in the war. Uh, And so what he was able to do was by staying, he put the Norwegian flag uh, out on the grounds of the church site and whenever the Japanese bombers came overhead, sometimes a thousand local Chinese people would flock to the church site 
And, e and uh, even though the, ch the, the Japanese bombers were bombing everywhere else around the city, they weren't bombing the church site. And so by his presence, this pastor's presence, by him staying, uh, he literally saved the lives of thousands of people. Then, sadly, one day, one of the bombers did hit the church sites and he was killed. And his family went through all sorts of trauma after that. Why? Why his death like that? Why the hindrance to such a good ministry? Why his suffering? Fast forward to 1990. His daughter, who'd grown up a little bit in that small town, went back to find out what had happened to uh, the people that she knew as a daughter, the people that her father had ministered to. Some of them remembered her father and remembered her. Some of them were Christians, and she was getting to know them. The provincial officials heard about this foreign woman in China, uh, uh, and started to ask questions. Who's this foreign woman here in this little small town asking questions? What's going on? And they learnt about this man who had died in the 1930s serving Christ and serving the local people. And they thought he needs to be honoured. So they invited, uh, so they put up a monument in his honour and invited the family to come to, set, to celebrate the opening of this monument to, to this man who had given his life. Uh, and this was in now the 1990s. Family came and the provincial official said to the family at one of the dinners, said, uh, I remember this is 1990s in China, uh, I want you as a family to come back and continue on the good work of your uh, of your grandfather. One of the people at the dinner, one of the family members was a missionary in Indonesia, had no plans of going to China, didn't know that much about China, but knew in the 1990s that you didn't get invited by the Chinese government to come and do mission in China and turn it down. So he went. We now have and have had for the last 25 years uh, local Christians working together with foreign Christians, uh, sometimes up to 100, now we're down to about 60 uh, people working and serving together, reflecting Christ. We have seen countless numbers of people come to faith. It's the aroma of Christ. People saw this sacrifice and responded and thought, that's the kind of people that we want. That's the kind of Lord that we want. People have responded. It was, it took 60 years really to see the fruit of it from our perspective, but God knew and he was glorified always. This aroma of Christ that wafts from the sufferings and the setbacks of our ministry and our mission can be inspiring when God is kind enough to let us see how it works or to smell it. But it can also be daunting. Daunting to think that if we are a disciple of Jesus, then we are captive behind our conquering God in this triumphal procession. And that we are being called in some way to suffering. We are being called to setbacks of being a part of God's mission can be daunting and we can think this is the kind of stuff it means and then are we worthy of the task that's the question that Paul asks at the end of verse 16 who is equal to such a task 
Are we up to it? Are you up to it? Am I up to it? Well, the answer is, of course, no. (laughs) No, no way. But that's okay. Because we don't need to be. Paul, in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3, outlines why he is confident in his ministry among uh, the, the Corinthians. He says that they themselves, the church in Corinth, is like a letter of recommendation because of the work of the Holy Spirit on their hearts. But where does that confidence in his ministry come from? Chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He made us competent ministers of a new covenant. So if you're worried that you aren't up to bearing the costs and challenges and setbacks and sufferings that might come because of an idea that you have to serve God, to make Jesus known, if you're worried about that, then just know that it's not up to your strength and your competence. God is the one who does it through us by his spirit on the work of other people's hearts by his spirit. He is the one who leads us as captives on the triumphal procession. With God at the front as our king and conqueror leading the way and us stumbling along in our brokenness behind him, revealing his glory. If you are feeling that your ministry plans have been frustrated by COVID maybe, by the sinfulness of others, by your health, or just the circumstances that you find yourself in, if you aren't living your plan A for ministry and mission, remember that that's not a failure. God has not been thwarted. Remember the challenges that we face that frustrate us and even the things that bring us to the point of being overwhelmed, these are likely just the thing that God is using to glorify himself, even if it's not entirely clear to you how that's happening. And as you pray for and partner with Christy in her mission with CMS, as you hear about her struggles now and the struggles and the challenges that certainly will come, they always do, don't doubt the value of the work that you are a part of with her but rather stop and make yourself sense the aroma of Christ in those struggles. And thank God, as Paul did, that God is being glorified through those struggles, as he is through your struggles in ministry and mission right now. Let me pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you lead us as captives in your triumphal procession. 
Father, we thank you that in our brokenness, in our weakness, in our struggles, in our suffering, that you are glorified as King and Conqueror. And so we ask that through us, by your Spirit, you would achieve your good purpose of writing your word on the hearts of the people that we are seeking to serve by your Spirit. And we pray that you would do that in and through Christie as well in Southeast Asia. We pray this in your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.